Good evening. Bernie tells me I need to speak from up there, but it feels weird to do that, Bernie, because <laughs> is it okay? And Pastor Mark said this will be a challenge to the AV guys. This is not on? It's, it's not, I don't, is it on? Okay. I don't understand signals. So... Author James K. Can you see me? Is that okay? Is, is that okay? really okay? I see great stress. I've caused great stress. Okay. I see lots of frightened eyes looking at me saying, we're not going to tell the guests now, but we don't like it. We'll go back to formal tomorrow night. Can we do that? But tonight, can we just be people gathered together? to read scripture and leave here with a word of hope from the Lord Jesus. Um, author James K. Smith, I think he added K because otherwise he's just James Smith and there's a trillion of them. He's a philosopher, a Christian philosopher. Wrote beautiful words. He said, in times of great stress, tribulation, the church has an option. We can either be a fortress of fear or a cathedral of hope. Wow, what a, what a challenge to the local church to be a cathedral of hope, not a fortress of fear. That we speak words of shalom to our communities, not words of panic and anxiety. And I hope that's what we find in this place, is a, a, not a fortress of fear, but a, a cathedral of hope. Summary of last night, for those of you who are not here, those of you who are here, all of you, two of you, awesome. So last night we talked about forgiveness. We talked about Jesus on the cross, uttering words, singing. And for some of you, actually a couple of you, this was brand new, that Jesus sang on the cross. Well, he did. We believe this in Matthew 22, uh, that Matthew records Jesus singing a psalm, Psalm 22, which is a, an entire psalm about how... how how great our trouble is, but how God redeems in the end. So if you follow the psalm all the way to the end, which we believe Jesus would have sung, the song in its entirety, um, you'd find that Jesus wasn't just singing a song of despair on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was singing a song of, of praise and worship to a God who sees us through our trouble. And that in the end, God prevails. Now, um, a phrase that he finishes this with, um, he finishes this psalm, this song, like David wrote it, by saying, it is finished, which are the final words that he utters on the cross, but we believe now he's sung those words. It is finished. Where does this come from? Well, um, side note, before we get to our text for tonight, which would be from Mark, um, in ancient, in ancient times, the, the phrase, it is finished, as we find that in Hebrew and then in the Greek, it's actually really meaningful. If you were a village or a town going to war, the, the, the little battle your village or the big war your village or your town engaged in meant everything. So you needed to know if you won or lost. And based on what the news was from the battlefield, um, your life was either over, you were going to be enslaved, <laughs> You're going to be taken to Babylon as captives for a whole few generations, or things would continue as they were. 
So you waited for a runner, a messenger, to come from the battlefield to your village, and this runner would come to the village, and from a distance, someone would see the runner coming, and they would say, we have news, the news are coming. And when the runner reached your town, your messenger reached your town, you waited for this runner to say, either run for the hills, <laughs> we lost, and you may, that meant everything's over, or the runner would say, it is finished. If the runner said, it is finished, the messenger delivered these words, then you knew we're saved. We're, we're going to be saved. We're good. Which is why the prophet Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And in, and in Romans, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. These are the words Jesus is uttering on the cross. It is finished. He is our messenger, saying, once and for all, it is finished. One person in this place has said amen. In this cathedral of hope tonight, there's one believer. Amen. Um, maybe some of you need to just go read the Psalm, Psalm 22, and see that I'm, what I'm saying. I'm not making this up. It's actually there. So Mark 3, um, let's just, just a couple of moments in Mark 3, and then we'll all go and watch soccer and basketball. <laughs> so you, we all know us, or, or surfing. Um, we all know that's what we, some of us are really curious about. But before we leave, let's leave with this challenge and blessing. Mark chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. This scene is a scene that paints and describes Jesus as being angry. Only one time in Scripture is Jesus described as being angry. Now, you're saying, yeah, but he was turning the tables over, etc. Yeah, but in those scenes, he's not described as being angry. The word anger is not used to describe his emotion. We're just seeing him turning tables over and whipping people, so we assume he must have been pretty upset. But the word anger is not used to describe how he's feeling. Only here, the word anger is described about Jesus. And some of you are probably really worried now, well, I don't want to think of Jesus as angry. I don't either, but let's find out what's the only thing that was important enough to Jesus that the writer of the, the, the gospel, Mark, chose the word anger to describe his emotion. Do you want to find out? Do you want to know? I'm the only, three of us, awesome. Yes! We're going to find out together, the three of us and the rest of you. Here we go. Another time, this is verse 3, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking, at a, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, because healing on the Sabbath is a sin, apparently. <laughs> Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. Man, angry Jesus. We don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, when I read this, I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, this is really anger. Like, not like, ooh, I'm mad at you. Not anger, like, if you get Someone's going to get hurt kind of anger. What made him so angry? He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, there's a hint, said to the man, 
stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they may kill Jesus. This is always going to happen. Anytime you side with the oppressed, the outsiders, they're going to plot against you. What made him so angry? Well, to understand this, I think we've got to put, it, put the story in context, don't we? Here's what I believe is happening. I believe this man was, the Bible doesn't tell us he was born with it. The Bible doesn't tell us that his shriveled hand happened to him because he was decorating for Occupy one day and he was shocked by the, the electricity. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us how his hand became shriveled. It just says he has a shriveled hand. But I'm, I don't think it's hard to imagine it or to think of it as, as, as this way. He was born with this shriveled hand. And can you see a little boy born, held by his parents, loved by his parents, assuming that he's normal, and then one day, playing with everyone else, beginning to realize, hold on, hold on. Everyone's got two arms, and everyone's got two arms that work, but mine, my, my, mine's not quite like the others. So this boy begins to realize, I'm different. I was born, by the way, this is really interesting. Some of you have to think about this for a while. He was born a minority into a majority. Which happens all the time. Was it a great sin that he was born this way? Some wickedness in his family that caused his deformity? Well, his, his people would have told him that. They would have said, you, you're deformed because there's great evil, wickedness in your family. Some great sin has been committed. And that adds another layer of complication to his life. Because not only is he now walking around going, I'm not quite the same as the rest of you. Now he's got to deal with the fact that, oh, and I'm also not quite loved by God the same way you are. Because I've got this deformity I was born with. I mean, and then eventually he's told, hey, by the way, you don't have access into the courts of the temple where every other man can go that has normal arms because you're deformed. We don't want your iniquity, your deformity, your sin polluting the temple courts. Can you see it now? You're beginning to understand what's happening in this boy's life. And he grows, as he grows up, his village, because it would have been a small village, everyone knows him, everyone knows there's a guy with a shriveled hand. Easy to find him in the crowd. There's the guy with a shriveled hand. Kids, stay away from the guy with a shriveled hand. And then one day, this gets really, really good. One day, the teachers of the law come to his home. I'm taking some liberties now. It's called homiletics. <laughs> it's called preaching. But stay with me. One day, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, who we love to vilify, sometimes they behave so badly, but they're not, they're not all evil all the time. They were just so concerned with the law. They come to his home and they say, hey, hey. And immediately he's like, whoa, what are you guys doing here? You don't even let me into the temple court. You don't even let me into the synagogue to sit in the front row. I always have to sit outside with the rest of them, the outcasts. And the, what are you doing in my house? They're like, oh, no, no, brother. Listen, let's sit down for a moment. We want to talk to you for a moment about this great thing that's happening in town this weekend. 
So, let's see your arm. Oh yeah, oh, it's bad. It's bad. It's shriveled. So hey, this weekend there's this great rabbi coming to town to teach in the synagogue. And there's rumors about him. They say he can heal things like your arm. Would you like to be healed? I would like that very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. You're coming with us, and you're going to sit in the front row with us. What? You've never even talked to me before. How is it that now you're interested in me? Saying, no, we just want you to be with us. Come with us. Hang out with us. You're our, our guest of honor at the synagogue on this day. Come sit in the front row. And by the way, make sure that we know you, you cover it. You cover it all the time because it's a great, you know, shame. And, but on that day, make sure it's completely uncovered so that the great rabbi sees it. Are you with me? Okay. Can you see it the day, the day of? He gets up excited like, ha, ha, This could be the day. It's not just another arm. It's life. Part of my society. To be, to be thought of as normal. To be loved. To be embraced. To be able to enter a house of worship, a cathedral of a hope, and find God there and worship there. Now, some of you are probably thinking this is going to... There's a turn coming. There is. Prepare yourselves. <laughs> he gets up that day thinking, this is the day. And he walks to the synagogue, uncovers his arm, and everyone thinks, oh, no, not you. You can't. And the teachers of the law say, no, he's with us. Come, sit in the front row. And he sits in the front row, just giddy, expectant, and in walks this rabbi, Jesus. And Jesus scans the room and immediately knows exactly what's going on. That's what Mark says. He knew what was up. He knew the hearts of the people in the room. Of course, he sees the shriveled arm and he knows, this is not about your arm. It's about me and whether I'm going to heal you on the Sabbath. What makes Jesus angry? See, he, healing the man is not the issue. You're healed. Awesome. He's angry at their shriveled hearts. Because in their shriveled hearts, they couldn't see that this was a real human being. So they used him as a pawn, an issue, a way to trap him. They don't think of him as a human being imbued with the grace and the holiness of every life God has placed on this earth. They think of him as an issue. And that makes him angry. People are not pawns. They're not issues. They have faces and names. And we commit grave sin when we treat them like that, whether they be straight or gay. Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, or Adventist. Republican, Democrat, <laughs> choose. You choose. So he's angry at their shriveled hearts because they fail to see a human being. They see a pawn with which they can trap him. 
And later they do. They will crucify him for caring for people first and caring for their well-being of those around him. God cares for the well-being of humans. We've got to get that straight. And when a human walks into what a human believes is a cathedral of hope, why would we give them dispense anything but hope? Why would we give them fear? Why would we say, your shriveled hand does not belong here? Why would we stare at the shriveled hand and think, oh, there's got to be some great sin in your life that you were born that way? Or maybe you were electrocuted that way while decorating. What great sin did you commit? Oh, that's not the way of Jesus. And that made Jesus angry. And now we know what makes Jesus angry is anytime we exclude. You want to talk justice? You know, when justice is mentioned in Scripture, there's always followed. I found nine times, nine different words that justice is always followed by. And those of you who are scholars of the Scriptures, you're going to go run home like this guy. I'm going to check him out. You can't. Every time the word justice appears in Scripture, it is always always followed by one of these words, widow, fatherless, orphan, poor, hungry, stranger, needy, weak, and oppressed. Every single time. This is the heart of Jesus. And justice is truth in action, isn't it? May we be truthful people. I'll close with this thought. Um, so, years ago, it's summer, let's talk about camp. Every pastor has a good camp story. And your pastor's like, well, you, how, can you, how can you not have a camp story? I should hold my Bible so you still believe that I'm what I'm preaching is gospel truth. And it makes me look more, makes me look more spiritual. I'm holding the Bible. Um, my wife and I worked for a um, hundred years, it seems like, uh, at summer camp. So we met. We, it's really important to us. We worked at summer camp so long, eventually other staff were saying, can you leave so other people have a chance to work at camp? Um, the Soka Pines Ranch in South Carolina, that's where I found my call to ministry and my love for scripture. Um, and uh, one day, <clears throat> we're working at this camp. Um, you know, I, I was um, what you would call, I mean, don't be fooled by my um, suave ways now was kind of socially impaired when I was uh, in college and working at camp. I think that's what you call it. Um, so I, was, I would always look to the, to the people who had it figured out socially. I'm like, these people, oh yeah. That, um, and there was one guy, and his name was Nathaniel, who was, who was the, the guy. Those of you who are men in the audience, you know, when you're about 18 or 19, there's someone, someone who's, who's, who didn't go through awkward adolescence, who got the cool card, he had a prelude. I mean, a prelude, I had an Econoline van, that's what my parents gave me. A prelude kind of says, Some, something's gonna happen. <laughs> awesome things are gonna follow this prelude. <laughs> um, so Nathaniel drove into camp one summer, you know, I drove in my van and he drove into camp and um, he, you know, he had he had the looks and the charm, and all the ladies went, ooh, Nathaniel. <laughs> he played guitar. He was disgustingly cool. Same summer, a kid walks into camp, and, you know, nine, eight or nine-year-old, really, really awkward, did not have it figured out socially. 
Not that a whole lot of eight or nine-year-olds do. But this kid was so out of his element, you could tell it's going to be a rough week for you. <laughs> Little overalls, white t-shirt, and one of these one of these guys right here. Now, now, before you get excited about, oh yeah, those are cool. Um, this is in the days when this was fashion suicide. <laughs> a trucker hat, mesh to keep the trucker head, you know, ventilated. Um, until a man named Ashton Kutcher made this fa famous and cool. I mean, he also wore it flat, flat, right? Kid, young, yeah, right, flat and sideways. Um, you would never be caught dead in this. And in those days, this was further proof that you are an outcast. Um, but he wore it. He was committed to it. Overalls, white t-shirt, hat, every single day. And man, they rained wrath upon that boy. The rest of the kids were so, I mean, relentless, like kids can be. Yeah, so he had also this little picture of a goat he carried in his front pocket. Little overalls from park. And you know, it was just weird. He would he would walk around and go, hi. <laughs> Pull out the goat, like, ha. <laughs> it's my goat. There's a goat sitting in some living room somewhere. Like, there's a living room, a goat? <laughs> That's my goat. So we, all of us staff members, began to call him Goat Boy because he had a picture of a goat. The goat boy. His real name was Brian, but no one used his real name. Brian. Um, Brian, show us your goat. <laughs> Come here, guys. Yes, yeah. Come here, show him, Brian, the goat. And he would go, yeah, and we'd all laugh at him, and then he'd walk away like, they kind of liked me, but we did, and we were making fun of him. The other kids, you know, they figured out this one is not like us, and they, one night they tried to kill him with pillows. He was out there. They had their pillows. They were beating him. You know, he thought it was going to be a pillow fight, but actually it was 12 kids against one. <laughs> and when he figured it out, he began to yell for help. Help, hey, somebody. So I came running out because, you know, I was the one expected to put the killings um, <laughs> you know, put him aside. So I'm like, Brian, what's going on, buddy? Um, everyone ran away. They saw me coming. And, and that night, I learned some things about him. I learned from this little boy that his father had committed suicide when he was four years old and that he had witnessed it. That his mother, unable to process such grief lost her bearings and wasn't able to care for him anymore, so he was handed over to foster care. And that he was bounced from foster home to foster home until he landed in the home of some older couple that loved him and gave him a goat and a hat. And this became his identity. Because John Deere hat was more than just a hat, it was like who I am. This is who I am. So he figured it out. By the end of the week, he figured out people hate my hat. They hate who I am. And one day, he showed up to the cafeteria without it. And we all said, whoa. Nathaniel, the coolest guy on earth, apparently, walked over to him and said, where's your hat? He didn't answer. Later that morning, Jerry, who was in charge of our campfire, we call him Jerry the, the pyro because he was in charge of making the campfires every day, 
came over with the charred remains of a hat. And he said, here's what happened to the hat. And in my head, I saw little Brian standing by that fire and saying, forget it. It's not, you know, if they, if they don't like who I am, I guess I got to stop being who I am. <laughs> um, so, so he burnt his hat, and, and that day, Nathaniel said, I'm taking a day off. He was angry. I was a boys director. He came up to me and said, I'm leaving for a day. Can't take this place anymore. We are evil. I said, yeah, you need a day off. Go. Came back that evening. Leading praise from up front. Apparently his spirit, a little more, more at peace, cooled, because he was smiling. And then... He reached into a bag he had in the front row and he pulled a John Deere hat and he put it on his head. And everyone just knew the hat is cool now because <laughs> the, the dude's wearing it. And then he pulled another hat from the bag and he pointed at little Brian and said, you come up here, you stand next to me. And there was this spectacle. Brian and Nathaniel up front. This little outcast, shriveled up outcast, healed. When John says the word became one of us, at great cost, this is what it means. And that the people of the gospel, those who have believed it, those of us who live it, we should be angry when the precious souls that belong to God have been told that because of their shriveled arms, they don't belong. And we should be putting on hats every day and coming to these cathedrals of hope, ready to dispense the good news that God loves. Jesus, may you work deep in our souls wherever there is any ugliness. towards anyone on this planet that you love. If you find shriveled hearts within our chests and our souls, God, may you change us into the kinds of people that you want us to be. May we burn with anger when we see your beloved creatures on earth excluded or used as pawns or called issues. May we love like you do, Jesus, in this place, in this zip code, in this town, we pray in your son's name. Amen.